بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين Point number 39 states that the people of paradise will gaze at their Lord. Does this infer that we will have the ability to perceive Allah at least partially? If so, how do we reconcile this with point 8? I explain this, I think, by saying that the meaning of this is in the hereafter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will manifest Himself and give us the ability to see Him to the amount that He wants. Obviously, it does not mean completely comprehend Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every aspect of Him. That's impossible. So, this will be a sight. He'll give us a vision of Himself. And exactly how much that is and how that is, Allah knows best. That's part of the ambiguous aspects. We don't go into that. We leave that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Likewise, another question said that if Allah doesn't have form, then how are we going to be able to see Him? Again, I clarified that as well, that when the Prophet ﷺ used the example of seeing the moon on the 14th night, how clear that is, that was just to show that everybody will be able to see Him, not to show any other kind of similarity in terms of form, etc., that's why the ulama have stressed over and over again, that's why Imam Tahawi said as well, that we need to believe in this, but without any modality. We need to believe in it in a way, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intends that to be. We're not going to insist that it's going to be this way, that way. It's going to be free of direction and form and etc, etc, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is transcendent of those things. It's going to be a vision which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We just have to hopefully wait and see. Does Miladun Nabi and Siratun Nabi got to do with Aqidah? Siratun Nabi just means the life of the Prophet. And Miladun Nabi means the birth of the Prophet. This is not an issue of Aqidah. Is it permissible or is your salat acceptable behind an Imam whose Aqidah is a bit dodgy or messed up? It really depends. It really depends on the amount of deviance in somebody. If it's a kufri aqidah, then obviously salat is not permissible. If it doesn't reach kufr, but it's an innovation, it's makru. It's makru, it's undesirable. To pray and make such a person an imam on a regular basis. If it happens by chance that one day that person is the imam, then it is better to pray behind in jama'ah than to pray alone. But obviously that's if it's not a serious contravention, a serious deviance. How is intercession different to that of the pagans and those who use the Prophet ﷺ and the pious, i.e. tawassul? It's actually very different. These people are actually directly calling on to these unseen gods that they've developed and saying that they're intermediaries to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Allah is out of the picture. <coughs> tawassul is when you're calling on to Allah, but just saying that I would like to invoke the position that this particular shaykh or pious person has in your sight. Just taking his name so that because you love him so much, and because he's such a muttaqi and a, such a pious individual, I'm nothing, I'm just using his name in the middle so that just as you would be more merciful on him, you'd have your mercy on me as well. So we're calling out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not to the individual. So tawassul is definitely very, very different. When you come to istighatha, that becomes a bit more problematic. You've got group who will say that tawassul and istighatha completely out of the question, haram, except in certain very specific conditions, like with the Prophet ﷺ when he's alive. And they've got a few other conditions. There's another group who believe that everything and anything is permissible. 
That's also problematic. The thing with istighatha, istighatha is to actually call out to somebody other than Allah who is not present. If somebody is present and you're calling out to them to help you, that's a whole different thing. When somebody is not present, you're calling out to someone, whether they're dead or alive, it doesn't really matter. That has the form of shirk. Because when I'm saying, Ya Abdul Qadir, madad. Oh Abdul Qadir, assist me. Which means Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani who has left this world, who is in his grave in Baghdad. Now again, this doesn't matter whether the person is alive or, or, or dead. It doesn't really matter. But we're just using the example of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. The reason why this is a bit problematic because an onlooker, number one, will look at this and say, why is, isn't this person calling out to Allah? Why is he calling to somebody who's not present? Kind of insinuates that the person is maybe present and listening. So, Regardless of what the person saying this, regardless of what their aqidah is, definitely insinuates this idea of shirk to others. Now in terms of the person who's saying it, somehow if they manage to direct this to Allah, what they intend by this is that I'm actually speaking to Allah, but I'm just saying it in this way. We can't call that shirk or anything, because the aqidah is correct inside. But still I think this is undesirable for the public because this has this connotation. You will see these statements in the poems and writings of some ulama where they'll say, Ya Rasulullah. Their intention again is not that they're calling directly onto the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They're calling onto Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala or they're just saying this out of love. It's just this statement in absentee, just like in the shahud we say, Assalamu Alaika Ayyuhan Nabiyyu Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh. It's a narrative, it's a statement. So that's istighatha. Istighatha is best avoided. But if somebody has done it, for example, in a poem or something like that, then we're not going to put a label on them immediately. You have to take it in context and see what they're talking about. Unfortunately, a lot of common people, I'm not talking about great scholars, but I'm talking about a lot of common people, it becomes part of their language to such a degree that Allah's name is completely replaced. So anything that happens... An accident takes place, or something bad happens, immediately they said, Ya Abdul Qadir Madad. Ya Abdul Qadir. So instead of saying Ya Allah, they'll say Ya Abdul Qadir. So a lot of the common people unfortunately may have a very misconstrued aqidah in this regard. And may actually even start believing that I'm actually calling out to Abdul Qadir Jilani. And that's where this problem is. So understand it carefully. And Allah knows best. Point 38 states that we cannot ascribe any human qualities to Allah. Why don't we interpret seeing or hearing as these are also human qualities? If Rahmah has to be reinterpreted, why is sight and hearing interpreted? Uh, I think what this is saying is that if Allah is different to everything, then how is it that we have sight and Allah has sight as well? Well, the thing is that Allah's sight is hearing, is knowledge is way beyond the knowledge and hearing and sight, etc. of anybody else. This is His creation, and in order for us to function, He's given us these qualities at this really basic level for us to be able to function and realize this life. So, this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sight and all of His qualities and His sifat and His attributes are unique and one and way beyond everything else. 
So that's why we make it very clear when you talk about a sight of Allah that His sight is unique in the sense that it's not in need of instruments or implements or direction or light or whatever. We have to be with our eyes open and in a particular direction with enough light and so on and so forth. In Surah Qiyamah, Allah says that some faces will be aglow gazing at their Lord. Does this mean that we will be seeing Allah on the Day of Judgment as well as in Jannah? There are some narrations which talk about on the Day of Judgment, this is to occur that they'll see Allah and then they'll recognize Him and those that recognize Him, then they'll go to paradise. There is some discussion here about that, but that is a possibility. Will we see Allah in Jannah? From statements that we can't conceive Allah, but then in Jannah the veil will lower and it says that we will see Him. Yes, in paradise there will be a vision that will be provided to the believers. The believers will be blessed with this type of vision as we've mentioned over and over again. Can you expand in Surah Nur's metaphor and Allah light upon light? It says, Allah nurus samawati wal ard. Many of the Mufassirin explain that as Allah munawwirus samawati wal ard. Allah is the giver of light. Allah is the illuminator of the heavens and the earth. And the light that's provided here, in the general sense, in the cosmic sense of light, that's also true. And also in the sense that, in terms of the guidance, you see, light is also metaphorically explained as guidance. So in terms of all of the planets and the entire system of this universe, their correlation with each other in terms of quantum physics, in terms of the interplay between the various different forces and bodies in this you know, cosmic universe that we have, that is also that guidance is also provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to each one of these creations. We come to our level, again, guidance is provided to us, again at various different levels. So there's different types of light. One is the light of guidance to Islam. Then there's the light of guidance to doing good deeds and abstaining from bad deeds. Then there's a higher form of light which is given to the awliya Allah, in which they're able to be even more scrupulous. And then there's the anbiya who have the greatest of light. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the provider of both the physical light, both the guidance, the direction. And in every sense of the word, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the provider of light. So He's Allah nuru samawati wal ard. Could you kindly reiterate the way Allah spoke to Musa alayhi salam also? How does He communicate to Iblis and so on? About Musa alayhi salam, again, it's not necessary to insist on either of these. They're both fine is that one group say Musa actually heard Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's eternal speech itself and that's why it's special. Others say that it's special because of the position and the circumstance in which this happened and then Allah mentioned it. But it actually came from a tree, but it was a very direct kind of experience that Musa had and that's why it's called that. How he speaks to could be through angels because with the wahi of the Prophet ﷺ, as in the beginning of Sahih al-Bukhari it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ would receive revelation in various different forms. One would be through a sound. It sounded like a buzzing sound of a bee. And then he would be inspired. With that, sometimes it would be a direct inspiration to the heart. And a lot of the time it was through Jibreel ﷺ. In the form of a human being, much of the time, in one or two occasions, in his original form. The Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel in his original form. There is also the direct one during the ascension, direct communication between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger. That gives us some understanding of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicates. I mean Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicates to the bee, the honeybee, uh, أَوْحَا إِلَى النَّحْلِ أَنِ اتَّخِذِي مِنَ الْجِبَالِ بُيُوتًا 
So it's an inspiration. And Allah knows best. I mean, these are things which Allah knows best, but there's a direct inspiration to the honeybee as to do what to do. It's not a development after living in a certain area or you know having to struggle to find nectar, etc. It's it's actually directly inspired from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's not an evolutionary process. It's a direct inspiration from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this creation that He created and gave it, facilitated for it its journey in this world and its life in this world. Number of questions about where is Allah, we'll talk about that inshallah. Somebody wanted a commentary on the difference in the meaning of ilah. The mufassirin like Tabari and Ibn Kathir and all the others have actually discussed this word ilah in terms of where it comes from and so on. I don't want to go into any detail there, but ilah could also come from a meaning in which it means to seek solace, to seek peace and tranquility, and thus people resort to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their need and in their life and so on and so forth. So that's one meaning. There's other meanings as well, being worthy of worship. The one everybody resorts to and worship is the deity of worship. Is there any contemporary group that their aqidah is related or similar to the aqidah of the other sects? I mentioned this right in the beginning. There are groups today like progressives, be very much like antinomians or the murji'ah. You know, they basically say we are ready to accept anybody as Muslims as long as they call themselves Muslim. Even though they may be wearing a cross or whatever in interfaith programs. That's not the opinion of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah says that if anybody, even if he's fully convinced about the faith, but takes on a salient sign, feature of another religion, like bowing to a cross or wearing a cross for that matter, that's a serious issue. That takes a person out of the faith. These people are willing to accept anybody, whether they're homo... Uh, whether they're whatever. <laughs> Not that a certain category of people like Gafir necessarily, they're big sinners, but they're willing to accept anybody as a Muslim, even if they've got serious deviant ideology that takes them to kufr. As long as they're just willing to call themselves Muslim. Now again, as Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'ah, our belief is that because of a sin, as major sin as it may be, as long as it's not kufr or shirk, we're not going to relegate anybody to eternal hellfire. We're going to say that he is under the will of Allah. If Allah wills, he can punish him for the sins or forgive him and not punish him at all. But eventually this person, due to the blessedness of the faith, La ilaha illallah, they will go to paradise. Okay, they will eventually go to paradise. But if somebody has kufr or shirk, then that cannot happen. So there's many groups like that. Then there's groups that today consider everybody else kafir very easily, just willing to call people kafir, go out and kill them. You know, you see that happening in, in other countries. Okay, that's a bit like the khawarij. You've got Mu'tazilites. I don't think there's any formal group as Mu'tazilites, but there's definitely individuals who like to associate themselves with the Mu'tazilites, and so on and so forth. If Allah has planned every minute of our lives from... Actually, this one, we're going to talk about a taqdeer issue. I'll just introduce it. If Allah has planned every minute of our lives from the time a human is given birth to, does that mean Allah has planned all the good and bad deeds a person will commit when he first enters this world? See, it's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wrote it in a way that He's going to force people to do this, that, or the other. He just knows what people are going to do with their free will, and that's what was written down. But inshallah, we'll deal with that later. Which madhab did Ibn Taymiyyah follow and why scholars quote him? Well, the madhab that he followed in Aqidah, it was supposed to be Hanbali in fiqh, though he had many opinions that were personal and not of the Hanbali school. That's not problematic because many scholars believe that he had the level of ijtihad within a madhab, within the Hanbali madhab. And there's Hanafi scholars like Tahawi who had many opinions. 
in the Hanafi school of fiqh that went against the Hanafi school. He's got his own opinions. He has all the right to hold those opinions because he's at that level of doing ijtihad within the madhab. This is the same as, for example, Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani, very staunch Shafi'i scholar. Some issues he went against what Imam Shafi'i's position was. That's completely fine for anybody at that level. It's not fine for us to follow those divergent opinions because they're not the opinion of the madhab, but they're an opinion of one of the scholars of the madhab which have not become a dominant opinion of the scholars of the madhab and of the school itself. So we're following the school, especially when it comes to Hanafis as well. And also the development of the Shafi'i school later on. There are opinions of Imam Shafi'i which are different than the Shafi'i school, for example. But in very, very small issues, in very minor issues. Because madhabs develop. They take on other opinions within the scope of the circumstance of the time as well. Why do scholars quote him? Well, if there's something good that he said, and there's a lot of good stuff that he said, I mean, scholars have considered him Shaykh al-Islam in many senses. So there's nothing wrong with quoting that. They've even quoted, in fact, people who are completely off, agreed by everybody, self-confessing Mu'tazili, like Zamakshari Nis Kashaf. They've quoted him for his great ability in Arabic. I mean, he was a master in terms of Arabic. One of the Asasul Balagha, I believe it's called, his dictionary, it's very unique. But then you do find there's certain groups and certain types of books that are always quoting him and only him along with Ibn al-Qayyim and about a handful of other scholars. But that's as far as their heritage reaches, that's why. Very seldom they'll quote from Nawi. If they say Nawi, they'll say, well, you know, he was Ash'ari, he had problems and deviances in Aqidah, but Allah will forgive him because he's done a lot of good work. They say the same thing about Bayhaqi. They say the same thing about Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani. That's problematic. It's just a particular group have tried to resurrect those ideas. Unfortunately, they don't necessarily agree with him in everything. There's certain things that Ibn Taymiyyah in fiqh mentioned that they don't necessarily agree with there as well. But that's why a lot of people quote him in that sense. So not everything from Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah is problematic if that's what you know the person was thinking in this question. Very important question, how can a person be sure that they have the correct aqidah? Is it enough to believe these things in the heart and try our best to practice it without being able to fully prove it? There's two things here. One is, how do you know you have correct aqidah? Well, a tried and tested book, an accepted book across the board is aqidah tahawiyah. If you can believe in everything that's in aqidah tahawiyah, right, and you have no problems with anything like that, no confusions about anything, that's correct aqidah. That's correct aqidah inshallah. Now in terms of whether you need to know the proofs of everything or not, that's not necessary. Scholars have discussed in great detail the taqlid in aqidah. Taqlid, which means following without knowing the proofs of somebody else in aqidah. What happens is, if it's a taqlid, the taqlid in aqidah which is not permitted and that has been condemned, is the one in which you're following someone purely for following that person. You're not following the sharia through that person's explanation to you, but you're literally following that person and their faith. So this person right now, a person converts because of another individual for marriage for example. Then it doesn't work out, so this person reverts back to whatever they believed in before. There it was pure taqlid, or it was basically a false conversion. Or if you're following somebody else who if they change, then you change as well. So you're not really following the Qur'an and Sunnah. You're not following the true Aqidah. You're following somebody else. That would be blind following. And that's not permitted. 
What is permitted though, is that all of these books and all of these sources of aqidah that we have, Imam Tahawi's aqidah, Abu Hanifa's aqidah, all of these other great books that we have, and the scholars that teach this, if you're following them because you believe that they're providing to you the true guidance in terms of what we should believe, then what you're really doing is you're just using that person's explanation and understanding as a transmission to you of the true aqidah, and that would be fine. Because it's not within everybody's ability to go to the sources and try to find out and collect what the aqidah should be. To look through the whole corpus of hadith and the Qur'an to actually say these hadith relate to aqidah and kind of bring them together. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's basically this service has been provided to us by the ulama. We're using that only, but we're actually following the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's a taqlid. You don't have to know exactly where it comes from as long as you've got trust in the scholarship. So you don't have to know the evidences. Otherwise, if you want to know the evidences, there are evidences provided for nearly every single line of Aqidah Tahawiyyah. For example, in Ghaznawi Sharhan, if we have time at the end, I was actually intending to quickly go through every point and mention the verse that it comes from. Also, scholars like Bajuri have mentioned the logical, the logical proofs for every one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all the way from His oneness to His beginninglessness to having the sifa or the attributes of speech and hearing and so on and so forth. Even though these things are proven without any form of doubt or confusion from the sources of Sharia, from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, he has still provided that just for those who like rationalism. Again, this was the later development of the Ash'ari school, where they kind of employed certain Aristotelian logic, for example. You know, for example, to say that the world is constantly moving and changing and adapting. And for anything that moves and changes and adapts, there needs to be somebody, an administrator, or somebody who causes that to happen. And thus, because the world is of that nature, it needs a creator, it needs someone who causes that change, and thus that's Allah. These Putting these premises in order to reach this conclusion is basically part of Aristotelian logic, which obviously was not used at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, but in order to clarify this for minds later on who want that kind of organized way of trying to reach a conclusion, they employed that. So let's go on to this next section. The next section, just read this section that talks about anthropomorphism and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond and transcendent of any human quality and the dangers of going into that. Now there's this whole debate that has raged on for quite a while about ta'wil and tafweed. These are two very famous concepts, very popular concepts. Tafweed means to relegate the knowledge to someone else. In this context... You hear a verse, you see a verse of the Qur'an, something ambiguous that's not very clear. The ulama have mentioned that this is one of the ambiguous mutashabihat verses of the Qur'an, or this is a mutashabih in the hadith. Then you leave that to Allah without trying to determine the exact meaning of it. While saying that we believe in this as Allah has intended. That's the meaning of tafweed. Tafweed means to take that verse and say, the most likely meaning... A possible meaning is this. So when it says that Allah's hand is with a group, as the hadith of the Prophet says, Yadullahi al Jama'ah, to do ta'wil of that would mean what is the most likely meaning of this? It's a metaphor. The Arabs use this. In fact, in English we use this. Don't worry, he's in my hands. Don't worry, I've got my hands on this. Basically, even though physically you're not touching the person, 
they're not physically under your hand, it just means they're in your control. And likewise in Arabic, in sound Arabic parlance, common parlance, that's a meaning that's acceptable. So those who accept that wheel said, this is a possible meaning. We're not insisting on it, but if you really have to have this mean something, otherwise you can't sleep at night because of what the mujassima created, this whole atmosphere of anthropomorphism, of human form and your human likeness. If you really want some meaning which doesn't go against laysa kamithlihi shay, while taking that into consideration, a meaning that is not against the nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the ulama have explained to him, as we have received, then this is a likely meaning. So that's called ta'wil. I'm just describing it yet. I'm not saying what's permissible and what's not permissible. We haven't got to that. Bajuri explains tafweed differently. He adds an additional point. He says that what tafweed means, relegation, consignment, what that basically means is that because Allah says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ shay, There is nothing like Him. Because Allah says that, and وَلَهُ الْمَثُلُ الْأَعْلَى and many other verses, it is necessary that any verse that you see which could insinuate the likeness to any creature, then you have to first turn it away from that apparent meaning and then you leave it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you're basically doing two things. You're taking it away from this harmful meaning, this problematic interpretation that when, for example, Allah says, فَأَيْنَمَا تُوَلُّوا فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ That in whichever direction you face, you will find the countenance of Allah, the wajhun, which means face of Allah. Obviously, if you're going to take that for its literal meaning, it's going to go against لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ shape Because people have faces. Alright? So, if you're going to think of this as a limb, as a face, as a limb, then immediately you're going against another verse in the Qur'an. And the verses complement each other. Especially when the ulama have mentioned, Laysa Kamithri is so important, and this is a mutashabih of the Qur'an. So immediately you have to turn it away from the apparent indication that you get of a limb. You turn that away. And even the Salafi interpretations or commentaries of Aqidah Tahawiyah, they make that very clear. It's not a limb. It's not a limb. When it talks about Allah, Yadullah, it says, it's not jariha, it's not a limb. Everybody kind of agrees with that except the serious mujassima. The serious, the true anthropomorphist, they'll just say, face, khalas, you know, face, separate from the body, different from the body, it's a face. So according to Bajori, he said that the Salaf's opinion was to immediately take it away from the zahir and leave its knowledge to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Both of those opinions are fine. Both the first opinion I mentioned, which is just to relegate it to Allah, that's just a brief way of saying it. Because obviously the salaf would take away the zahir meaning, the apparent meaning that insinuates limb, that insinuates body part, that insinuates human-like nature, obviously they would take it away. That's what Bajuri just explained in more detail. So there's no contradiction between those two interpretations. That wheel basically then means to interpret, make sense of, assign a meaning to, give an interpretation or explanation to. As in interpreting the saying, let's just say somebody said, the king defeated the enemy. The king defeated the enemy. Now, who exactly defeated the enemy? Was it done at the king's hand and he physically went and done it? Was he part of the war? Not necessarily. That could happen. 
But that's not necessary. This is a metaphor to explain that it was done under his instruction, command and guidance. It was done using his troops. He may have been part of it, he may not have been part of it. And he's probably sitting on the throne somewhere. When that said, if you do tafweed, and literally tafweed means to refer to another for decision or judgment. Okay, so you don't do it yourself. You consign it to somebody else. So in here we're consigning it to Allah. So it means to leave any statement revealed about Allah Most High as it was revealed without elucidating or interpreting it. And consigning its intended explanation to Allah. For instance, Allah says, Allah Most Gracious is firmly established on the throne. Istawa al arsh Hence, this information is mentioned in the Qur'an, but the how of it is not known. How exactly is he established? How exactly is this istiwa on the arsh? That's not known. Asking about it is an innovation. Because somebody came to Imam Malik, and he asked him that question. When the person came to Imam Malik, he asked, how is this istiwa that Allah mentions in the Qur'an? Imam Malik initially lowered his head, and then he responded to him with those famous lines, al-istiwa'u ghayru majhul. The istiwa is not unknown. There's various ways that this has been related, but this seems to be the stronger one. Al-istiwa'u ghayru majhul. Wal-kayfu ghayru ma'qul. Wal-kayfu majhul. Al-istiwa'u ma'loom. Wal-kayfu majhul. And that's the other way it's related, but this one I think is stronger, especially in wal-kayfu ghayru ma'qul. The how of it, the description of it, the modality of it is not comprehensible as opposed to not known. It's not comprehensible. It's not conceivable by us. So, yes, the istiwa is known because Allah mentioned it. But its description and how is not comprehensible. But, al-imanu bihi wajib. The iman and belief in it is necessary. Was-su'alu anhu bid'ah. But asking about these questions is an innovation, not something done by the sahaba. Which basically proves that they did not address the Prophet ﷺ about the exact meaning of these things, but they were able to understand that Allah mentions in terms of His guidance in the other place about not seeking such interpretation uh, except by those who have deviance in their heart. And then He says, "Wama أَظُنُّكَ إِلَّا ضَالًا I have no thought about you except that you're deviant. Basically means that I think you're deviant. فَأَمَرَ بِهِ فَأُخْرِجَ He gave a command and he was taken out. He was taken out of the majlis. Because I mean, this causes confusion to the whole group of people that were sitting there. Zamakhshari asked Ghazali about this ayah. Ghazali responded to him. And he said, إِذَا اسْتَحَالَ أَن تَعْرِفَ نَفْسَكَ بِكَيْفِيَّةٍ أَوْ أَيْنِيَّةٍ فَكَيْفَ يَلِيقُ بِعُبُودِيَّتِكَ أَن تَصِفُ تَعَالَى بِأَيْنَ أَوْ كَيْفَ وَهُوَ مُقَدَّسٌ عَنْ ذَلِكَ Then he gave this whole poem. That if you're unable to even understand your own self, your intricate nature of your own self, then how can you ask about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and understand Him? How is it even possible for your servitude, at your level of servitude, to even ask about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you describe Him with an ayna or a kayfa? Like where is He? Ayna, where is He? Or kayfa, like how is He? And that's something in a hadith that Prophet ﷺ also prohibits by saying, لَا تُفَكِّرُ فِي ذَاتِ اللَّهِ Don't brood over and ponder and reflect over the essence of Allah. But think over His attributes, His signs, His bounties around you. That's what gives us a window to Allah. But not by thinking of His essence because it's too beyond us. So now, in this verse, put forward to Imam Malik for instance, Allah says that, istawa, 
So he says that the istiwa is known, but its description is unknown or it's not comprehensible. So if you're going to take this in detail, the word arsh or throne is used in the Quran and in Arabic. And sometimes it means the elevated seat that is encircled by the angels. Like the arsh. What's the arsh? Arsh means the special throne that's encircled by angels. This is obviously the apparent understanding of the Sharia. But this word can also be used in Arabic, accepted Arabic conversation as dominion, mulk. As the poet says, when the throne or the urush of the sons of Marwan were diminished, meaning their power and dominion diminished, even though it didn't have any physical thrones. So the word istiwa now can be used to mean a number of different things. Number one, istawa could mean resting or becoming settled. Basically in Arabic, another synonym to that would be istiqrar, to become settled, to rest. As in the words of Allah, the ark rested on Mount Judi. Istawat al-Judi. So the word istawa is used there, but in the meaning of istaqar, that it came to rest on Mount Judi. It's also used to mean to straighten or stand up, as opposed to becoming crooked, so to be straight. As in the words of Allah, then it stands on its own stem. ثُمَّ اسْتَوَى عَلَى سُوقِهِ يُعْجِبُ الزُّرَّاءَ Surah Al-Hashr. That's talking about the stem. It's also used to mean completeness. As Allah Most High says, when He reached His full age and was firmly established. What's the verse about Yusuf? فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَشُدَّهُ وَاسْتَوَى فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ أَشُدَّهُ when he reached his full age and was firmly established, wastawa, just firmly established in terms of settled and so on. That is, he had achieved his full body strength. It's also used to mean physical elevation or highness above something. But this meaning is inconceivable for Allah Most High. Because then you have to give him direction. You have to say, well, he's in the above direction to us and we're below him. It puts him in a place. When you put him in a place, then that means he's taking a certain hears, a certain spatial location. A location is something which the air becomes cleared out of, for example. Okay, so he's taking up a position somewhere. And all of these things actually are very, very unsuited for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why this one meaning definitely should not be attributed to Allah. But some people insist on this meaning. You know, those who do insist on a particular meaning, they insist on this meaning. Over and above all other meanings. You know, rather than leave it completely to Allah, they say, no, you have to believe it in this way. But then the exact how of it we leave to Allah. But you have to say it's a direction. It's like this physical direction. So this meaning obviously is inconceivable for Allah most high, along with the fact that physical elevation doesn't necessarily imply exaltedness either. Since it is possible that, for instance, a leader be physically situated below his guards and his guards are standing above him. Doesn't mean that they're better than him. Rather, what is meant by istawa, if anything, you know, if uh, what is meant by istawa in terms of a meaning that befits Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a possible meaning is that of elevation in status and rank. So why not leave it at that? Because that's agreed upon. Then to insist that he's in a physical location above. That's where this whole question now comes up of, where is Allah? And when you say everywhere, which is also wrong in a sense, then they 
confuse the person to such a level and then they say, look, Allah says, Istawa al-Arsh, which basically means that he's resting on his Arsh and the Arsh is above the seven heavens and that's above. So, he's above. Interpretation of the physical attributes of Allah. There's two things here. One is the opinion of tafweed that we were talking about. That was the opinion of the Salaf. The true Salaf, that was their opinion. Leave it to Allah. Take away any meaning that may insinuate likeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some scholars that came later, because of the problems of their time, they found that it became necessary for them to give a suitable interpretation. While saying at the same time that the opinion of the Salaf is the best opinion, is the safest opinion. But their opinion of interpreting a suitable, inter- giving a suitable interpretation has been considered to be a wise move for the time and circumstance. Has been considered the more knowledgeable approach for the time. So for example, you've got hand in the verse, the hand of Allah is over their hands. Yadullahi fawqa aydihim. Obviously that can't mean a physical limb, that Allah has a hand and it's above this. The how of it is unknown. You can't say that it's a physical limb, but the how of it is unknown. Because that's not the opinion of the salaf. The literal meaning of hand is a limb. So if you're going to take that meaning, it's problematic immediately. This would be pure tashbih and tajseem, corporalism and anthropomorphism. Now should you do ta'wil or not? I remember there was a sister who was from a Hanafi background. She asked questions about Hanafi fiqh and then she happened to get married to a person of a Salafi background. And they were constantly having problems. Finally, I got to speak to the husband. He says, like, you guys do ta'wil. I said, I've never done ta'wil. Right? It's not something I do every day. Ta'wil is gone. Do ta'wil of these verses. It's not something that we exercise. So he says, no, 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 the Ash'aris do this. And I said, well, the Ash'aris, their belief is that it's a permissible thing, just as Ibn Abbas anhu actually did about Yawma Yukshafu An Saqin during the time of the Sahaba. I mean, that's mentioned from Ibn Abbas anhu. So, ta'wil is not haram. You know, it's something which the Salaf didn't do because it led to problems and there was no need for them to do it. But the Khalaf, the latest scholars found that there were problems in their time, people trying to take people away and trying to make them envisage Allah in human form. So at least this was a suitable meaning that they could get some people to rest on. So that at least there's something in the mind. You know, because this is one of those issues where as long as a youth is growing up, doesn't think about marriage, it's fine. But once they start thinking of marriage, then it's very difficult to subdue that, then they definitely need to get married. Okay, once you've given a place for that in your mind, because it's a natural instinct, you want to get married afterwards. This is one of those things, once somebody causes this confusion in your mind, it's easier then to settle on a suitable meaning. You know, it's a greater challenge to say, okay, let's just forget about it completely. So that's why the scholars decided to give that to the masses. So it's not something you do every day. It's just something that was required and that was done. So, as Bajori and others and Laqqan and Jawhar al-Tawheed mentions as well, that the ta'wil of certain later scholars has been mentioned, and it has been said that their way is more judicious, it's more ahkam and a'lam, according to the demands of their time. However, it has been related from some Shafi'is, for example, that Imam al-Haramain al-Juwaini, he's a big name in Ash'ari theology, one of the great imams of that, Imam al-Haramain initially engaged in ta'wil but left doing so at the end of his life and rendered it unlawful. 
He related the consensus of the predecessors on his prohibition. This is Mullah Al-Qari who is relating this. Now the Maturidis in general stay a bit more further away from Ta'wil. Ash'aris embrace it a bit more. This has just been my observation. I could be wrong. But it seems like the Maturidis mention it in the passing. And this is what's mentioned. Ibn Daqiq Al-Eid. He was most likely a Maliki scholar. There is a difference of opinion. But he was a great scholar and a very neutral one. He followed a middle path in which he says that the ta'wil of these attributes is acceptable if the meaning is close to the popular usage of the Arabs. Something that's in common usage of the Arabs then is permissible because that's, what, that's an acceptable way of doing it. It is unacceptable if it's some distant meaning. Ibn al-Humam, one great Hanafi Maturidi theologian, both in fiqh and in aqidah, says that it depends on the situation. Ta'weed is called for if there's a problem in the understanding of the people, otherwise it is to be left alone. So you'll only interpret if the situation demands where people just need something to understand, otherwise you leave it alone. So finally, in order to conclude this discussion, where is Allah? This is a question that comes about and has confused a lot of people. Number one, this question, the first answer to this question is that this question should not apply to Allah at all. We're only applying it because of the way we see things and the way we relate to things. Because everything is in a relative position to where we are and we relate to it that way. We can't deal with our Creator that way. Because when you say, Aina, Aina Allah, where is Allah? Aina means, Fi ayyi makan. Which place is He in? That means Allah is taking a place up and that's problematic. That's the first answer to this. Another answer to this is a very simple one. If you've got somebody who's very insistent about no ta'wil and about asking you where Allah is, says, where is Allah? So you say, huwa ma'akum ma kuntum. He's with you wherever you are. No, 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 brother, you need to tell me exactly where he is. Huwa ma'akum ma kuntum. No, 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 I need to really understand where, where is that exactly. Allah says in the Quran, huwa ma'akum ma kuntum, we leave it at that. That's what Allah said and that's what we go with. You see, you see where this is going, right? Or you say, أَقْرَبُ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَبْلِ الْوَرِيدِ It's closer to you than your jugular vein. No, 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 but I, I want more than that. أَقْرَبُ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَبْلِ الْوَرِيدِ Finish. Another answer. وَاللَّهُ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ وَاللَّهُ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ اتَّقَوْ وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ مُؤْمِنُونَ There you go. And leave it to Allah. Just consign the meaning to Allah and that's the response. The third response, which is the best response in a way, I asked our Shaykh, Shaykh Adim Kallas about this. There was a question about this here as well. What do we teach children? Because in our families and in our background is like Allah is everywhere. That is not necessarily entirely wrong. It is wrong because of what it implies that Allah is physically everywhere which then begs the question as these people will ask, is he in the cup? Is he in this bag? La hawla wa la quwata illa billah. Or is he in the toilet? And they really throw people off. So saying he's everywhere insinuates this physical location. However, if somebody means that he's everywhere, i.e. by his knowledge or in his knowledge, according to his sight and hearing, then obviously there's nothing wrong with that. But it insinuates a problem, it insinuates a physical location, it insinuates hulul, 
and ittihad. It insinuates what they call being infused in something, that Allah is infused in everything. There's a special word for this in Arabic, it's called ittihad and hulul. That actually leads us to the third point, which is, where is Allah? So I asked the shaykh and he said, he is where he's always been. Where is Allah? He's where he's always been. Before he created the arsh, after he created the arsh, he's where he's always been. What do you teach children? I asked the shaykh. The shaykh said, that's exactly what you teach them because children at a very young age, they just want something to go by. They're not going to really think about it much. But when you start talking about Allah, you say, okay, where is Allah? You just say, Allah is where he's always been. Okay, Allah is where he's always been. Afterwards, as they grow up, then they'll wonder, what does that mean? What do you mean by where he's always been? Why do we have to think of it in this vague kind of term? Then you explain to them that Allah is way beyond that. It's like, give them an example that, you know, you get a calculator, the calculator was made by the human being. Can the calculator understand the human being fully? You know, you give them some small examples like that to just kind of explain to them that, look, Allah is way beyond transcendent and pure and over and above anything that we can think about and we can't situate, you know, we can't put a location on Him. That's why when Imam Abu Hanifa was asked about this, he said something very, very clear about this. He said that we agree that Allah is established on the throne without His needing it or resting on it. So this is what he said. He said, we agree that Allah is istawa on His arsh without His needing it, without any ihtiyaj, without being muhtaj of it. I'm using the Arabic so that you know what exactly he used because the English messes it up a bit. We agree that Allah is istawa on the throne without his ihtiyaj to it or istikrar on it. He took out the istikrar meaning because that is problematic. Because that means then he's contained by this limited throne. And everybody agrees the throne is created by Allah. It's limited, though it's vast, but it's limited. And if that contains Allah, la hawla wa la illa billah, that gives a major problematic connotation. Then he said, and he is the guardian of the throne and all besides the throne. And then he says, if he were in need, he would not have been able to bring into existence the universe or administrate over its affairs, just as created beings cannot. If he was in need of the throne in terms of sitting on it or you using it for whatever, if he had need for it, then he would not have been able to bring into existence, just as created beings cannot. And then he says, if he was in need of sitting or settling on it, istikrar or julus on it, then before the creation of the throne, where was he most high? That's what he said. If he needs to sit on there, then where was he before he created the throne? In effect, he is transcendent of all of this. He is above all of this. Such a beautiful way that he's clarified that. See, among the early Hanbalis, that's when this problem came about of Tajseem. And it was initially it was serious Tajseem, pure corporalism. Ibn al-Jawzi, Abu al-Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, the great scholar, wrote a number of different works. Alhamdulillah, he was not on that path. But he used to complain a lot about his fellow Hanbalis. And he said on one occasion that my hair stands on end when I hear what some of my fellow Hanbalis are saying. They say that, you can say that Allah has a face because Allah says so in the Qur'an. You can say that He has a shin because He says so. You can say He has a hand because He has that as well. He, he mentions that as well. You can say Allah runs because He mentions that. But you can't say He has a head because He doesn't mention that. What kind of a monster is somebody trying to create here? 
You know, to go into that level and talk like that on these obscurities is where the problem arises. Now what happens is, after Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah's time, in his time and after, they stopped making this so blatant. Then it was like, look, we have to believe that when Allah says hand, it literally means hand, it's not metaphorical. They say, Sallim haqiqatahu wa fawwit kayfiyyatahu. Means, affirm its literal meaning, but leave the description of it to Allah. So they say, we're doing, we're doing tafweed, but they do it after taking one step. The salaf used to do it without taking any step. Or they would only do it after taking away any unsuitable meaning from Allah. So the true salaf, like Abu Hanifa and so on, they say, don't do ta'wil, leave it completely to Allah. Don't insist that it's haqiqah or majaz, leave it to Allah. Just take away any unsuitable connotation. Okay? Whereas what the people today do that follow in this methodology of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah and others, is that they say initially you have to insist on the haqiqah that it's not majaz, it's not metaphorical. So when you say yadun, it is yadun, literally, but we don't know its description. And it's not a limb. A lot of them will then clarify, it's not a limb, but it's a yadun. It's like they take you right there and they say, no, it's not that, but for a lot of common people on the street, I don't know where that's going to get them. It's highly problematic in the way that's being said. So when they say they're salafi, and that's a salafi opinion, that's completely incorrect, because what they're doing is they're doing one ta'wil, then they're doing tafweed. The salafis are doing a ta'wil, which is that first take away the metaphorical meaning and insist on the literal meaning, and then do tafweed. Whereas the salaf, they said, no, we're not going to worry about literal and metaphorical. In fact, some people, they say there's no metaphor in the Qur'an at all. So for example, when Allah says that, وَمَنْ كَانَ فِي هَذِهِ أَعْمَى فَهُوَ فِي الْآخِرَةِ أَعْمَى وَأَضَلُّ سَبِيلًا Translate that literally. It's in Surah Al-Isra, Bani Israel. Allah says, whoever is blind in this world, then he will be blind in the hereafter. أَعْمَى means blind. In fact, he will be even more deviated. أَضَلُّ سَبِيلًا Now let's just say there's no metaphor in the Qur'an, then what happens to the poor blind person? It's not their fault that they're blind in this world. You're blind in this world, you're going to be blind in the hereafter. In fact, you're going to be even more deviated. You have to take this metaphorically. That it means blindness, meaning blindness of the heart from the truth. Not blindness of the eyes, which is the literal meaning. That is the kind of extreme that some people go to. In fact, Shaykh Uthaymeen, rahimahullah, he passed away, Allah have mercy on him. He said, that when somebody asked about the hadith about the jal that he only has one eye, وَمَا رَبُّكَ بِأَعْوَرْ and then the Prophet ﷺ said that your Lord is not one-eyed. So, <laughs> the normal meaning that the ulama would take from that is our Lord doesn't need eyes and have eyes. Okay? And this individual is going to call himself God and he has this one eye and the other eye is covered or it's not functioning. So, Uthaymin says, well, this proves that Allah has two eyes. Not eyes, it says two ayun. I mean, you can see where they take it because of the meaning. I mean, this is a serious problem. Even though sometimes they go to great lengths and say, no, we don't mean a limb. Laysal jariha. It's not jariha. But then because of the way it's said, it insinuates that and a lot of the common people begin to believe that. And that's where the problem is. So where is Allah? He's where He's always been. I mean, it's not for us to determine that. I mean, we're not going to be asked about that. 
So to get away, if somebody's going to persecute you for this, it's istawa Khalas, finish. Hopefully that's clarified a lot of this ta'wil, tafweed issue. But now we go on to the next section, which is very simple. Number 48. The night journey, Isra and ascension, Mi'raj. Uh, just to quickly describe this, there's actually two parts of this journey. They both have different names. They've been called different things. And there's also different rules related to each of them. The first is that the Prophet wasallam is in either the haram, in the hatim area, or he's in the house of Ummu Hane. Both of these things have been related in the ahadith. He is picked up by the angels and taken on a burak from Arabia, from Mecca, Mukarrama, to Jerusalem. This was done at night time on this special animal which was from the heavens. And he was accompanied by the angels. This was a special journey. There's a lot of detail as to what happened in between. Some versions mention that he actually stopped three places in between. He saw certain things. He met certain prophets. Anyway, he got to Jerusalem. The burak was tied to the ring to which the prophets would tie their mounts in their times. He entered the Masjid al-Aqsa. When he entered Masjid al-Aqsa, he mentions that all the prophets were present there. Ibrahim alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, etc., etc. Somebody had to lead the prayer. Some of these points that I'm mentioning are in weak ahadith, some of them are in stronger hadith. The main story, the main general movement from one place to the other is in the Qur'an, until here. Subhanalladhi asra bi'abdihi laylan min al-masjid al-harami ila al-masjid al-aqsa. Glorified be he, the Lord who took his servant by night from Masjid al-Haram to Masjid al-Aqsa. If you look in Abdullah Yusuf Ali's translation, it says, who took his servant by night from the glorious precinct, I believe it says that in there, to the furthest precinct. I remember somebody came up to me and I said, you know what, I've looked all over in the Quran, Masjid al-Aqsa is not mentioned in there. He's looking at a translation. Masjid al-Aqsa is not mentioned in the Quran. These Muslims keep saying, Masjid al-Aqsa is very holy, it's mentioned in the Quran. This is because there's a literal translation being made. Aqsa means to be furthest. Masjidul Aqsa. Right? Al Masjid al Aqsa, which means the furthest precinct. Masjid I in the sanctified area. They literally translated it. From this glorified place to that one which is further away. When he got there, in some versions it mentions all the Prophets were there. Who's going to lead the prayer? Jibreel alayhi salam led the Prophet forward. That marks his superiority over all the Prophets as well. He led the prayer, he met the Prophets. There's a lot, of, lot more detail which we don't have time. You know, you need a whole program just for that. After that, it says that until now it's called Isra, the night journey. This part is mentioned in the Qur'an. Anybody who rejects this, according to the scholars, is considered a kafir. Because this is part is established through absolute definitive proof from the Qur'an. Now the next part of the journey, which is through the heavens, there's detail about that as well, who he met, which prophets he met on each one of these heavens. He went on to the seventh heaven where he met Ibrahim alayhi salam. So, you know, you've got Adam alayhi salam on the first one, they say Isa alayhi salam on the second one, Harun on the fifth one, alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam on the sixth one, Ibrahim alayhi salam on the seventh one, resting with his back on the Baytul Ma'mur, which is the Kaaba of the angels, right above in parallel to the Kaaba of the earth. 70,000 angels go around that every single day. They never get a chance again because there's so many angels. That gives us some understanding of the angels, the number of them. Then he went beyond that. Jibreel wasn't allowed to come there. He went to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he met with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It says that while he was traveling beyond the low tree, he heard the sound of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. 
The question is, why did he hear the sound of Abu Bakr radiallahu anh? He said that because now he was in a place that was very, very different and out of the realm. And in order just to make him hear something familiar, he was made to hear the sound of Abu Bakr radiallahu anh. This is not necessarily from you know, very sahih hadith or whatever. But if you want, one of the best descriptions of the Isra and Mi'raj that I've read is in a book by Maulana Tanwi called Nashru Tib Fi Dhikr Sayyid al-Habib. It's a seerah book written by Hakim al-Mamun There is an English version that we've been trying to bring out, but we just can't find a good Urdu editor to look through it and revise it. But the section on Mi'raj is just absolutely fascinating because what he's done is he's brought most of the narrations together. He's reconciled a lot of the superficial contradictions that are found in those narrations and the lessons that are drawn from that. It's just a very amazing discussion. So, it's the ascension which means the Mi'raj. The ascension is called the Mi'raj. The night journey is from Makkah to Jerusalem. That Jerusalem journey is considered to be qat'i. Rejecting is kufr. The next part is not established by qat'i or definitive proof. And that's why rejecting of that is unrighteousness, fisk. But it's not kufr. Why Jerusalem? Allah knows best, but some say that that's where the door to the heavens is above Jerusalem. And Allah knows best. It's also a blessed area. So he met with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let's look at what Imam Tahawi is saying as to what our belief should be. Number 48. Number 48. Again, he said this in such a beautiful way that he's told us what exactly you have to believe in without mentioning the details that are from maybe weak hadith or so on. The ascension is true. The Prophet ﷺ was taken by night and ascended in person and consciously to the heavenly realm. And from there to wherever God willed in the celestial heights. Allah honored him with what he willed. So again, that's very vague. I mean, because there's differences of opinion as to exactly what kind of interaction he had. Allah honored him with what he willed and revealed to him that which he revealed. His mind did not imagine what he saw. That's to prove that this was physical. This was not a dream ascension. Okay, our belief is that the Prophet ﷺ went with his physical body. Now, there are narrations in which he had a dream about it. Those were to prepare him for the physical realm. A number of times he had dreams in which he was shown many things. There's a lot of detail about those. Where he was shown the punishments and so on and so forth. Then he was physically taken in that one night. And when he came back. Obviously another proof of this is that had it been in his dream or a spiritual one only, the people of Mecca wouldn't have had a problem with that. Because people see all sorts of dreams. I mean they can go around the world so many times and go way beyond but because he was claiming this to be physical, that's why there was such a great protest against it by the people of Mecca that how can you do this in one night and so on and so forth. The next point again is very simple as well. It talks about some of the eschatological ideas about the hereafter. One is, وَالْحَوْدُ الَّذِي أَكْرَمَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى بِهِ غِيَاثًا لِأُمَّتِهِ حَقٌّ The pool that Allah has honored him with as a solace for his community is real. So while talking about the Mi'raj, which was a special honor 
placed on the Prophet ﷺ, Imam Tahawi also decided now to add other honors that the Prophet ﷺ has been given. And one of them is the pool, the haud. This is a very, very vast pool. There's descriptions of its length mentioned in the ahadith. And it says that the cups around it are in the number of the stars in the sky. Basically enough to go around for anybody that's there. But that is the haud from which the Prophet ﷺ will give people to drink, meaning the believers. And unfortunately, there will be some who will get to that place and then will be repelled by the angels that these people changed after you went. Prophet ﷺ said, Hawdi masiratu shahrin, ma'uhu abyadu min al-laban, wa rihuhu atyabu min al-misk, wa kizanuhu kanujumi sama, man shariba minhu la yadhma'u abada. Hadith related by Bukhari and Muslim from Ibn Amr ibn al-As in which it says, my hold, my pool, watering place, the length of it is the distance of a month's journey. Its water is whiter than milk, and its fragrance is sweeter than musk. Now sitting here you think, you know, perfumed water. It's a whole different realm we're talking about. This is just a description of the pleasantness of this water. What that is trying to show is the absolute beauty and purity and pleasantness of it. Wakizanu and its cups Vessels are like the stars of the sky. Whoever drinks from it once, they'll never thirst again. Like in paradise, and these people are going to be destined for paradise. Where exactly is it? There's difference of opinion as to exactly what position coming after the questioning, before the questioning, just before paradise. Where is it? There's different opinions. There's a lake in paradise which feeds this pool. Because there's different narrations which talk about the kawthar being the pool. Hawth Kawthar, and then it also says that there's a lake in paradise called Kawthar. So then some reconciliation has been made by saying that the lakes of paradise is what is fed into this. We pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah allow us to be worthy of being given to drink by the Prophet from this on the Day of Judgment. Prophet said, Nahrun wa'adanihi rabbi azza wa jal. That it's a nahr, a lake that has been promised to me by Allah. So there's different versions of this narration that speak about this.